All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 378. Jason Lingren is with me, and I believe our most frequented guest, Wayne McCroy, is back. Uh, Jason, I looked a while ago. Uh, I think Wayne's been here more than anyone else for good reason. Uh, we're going to cover some old myths today, or specifically a myth. And that was written, as far as we can tell, I'm not 100% sure because I didn't have as much time as I wanted. I'm reasonably sure. And you can correct me in comments if I get this wrong, that Ovid is the first person to tell the Arachne Minerva story, the weaving spider. If this is correct, it means quite a bit. And I will, again, need more time to go back and see if I can find any representation of Arachne, uh, the human being who's weaving, uh, before Ovid. The difference is this. Back in the day, there's all these heroic heroes that we don't know much about that were from a time we know nothing about. The Romans come along and they latch on to all of it. They rename some of the supposed gods or aspects of nature, and they do other things. What Wayne and I were beginning to land on here is with the story of Arachne, if it is not told in the old Greek heroic times, it appears what's going on is that Rome is introducing the idea of a person in these tales. In other words, there's these elite beings in the, what we're about to cover being represented by the owl. And then there's plebes, lesser beings, which in this case would be represent, represented by the spider. Uh, if this is true, then it all relates to law, probably. Anyhow, that's a mouthful. Welcome, Jason. And a beautiful good morning. It is, man. We're well into December and I haven't been snowed on, so I'm happy, but let's get to it. Welcome, Wayne. Good morning, gentlemen. Good to be back here. I'm not so lucky I did get snowed on already, but uh, it wasn't enough to really stick around, so that's good. Well, you're in Pennsylvania. That's the edge of the Arctic Circle. <laughs> I marked the Arctic <laughs> Circle at Michigan, basically. Um, so we should mention that you've got to have a broad view, and what we're going to cover here today applies as much, if not more, in our time than it ever did. And there are things on the periphery that we will touch in. As we were just coming on air, we spoke about the new Spider-Man, Spider-Man movie. And uh, that's called No Way Home. And there are some magical beings like Dr. Strange pulled in. I don't know much about it. That's about all I know about it. But these things are all certainly going to relate. And Jason pointed out that in that coming echo, there are the original Spider-Man actors and the present Spider-Man actors. And that is about, it's almost like saying whatever that time was, the first guy was released. Look at the metamorphosis that has happened to where we are now. Starting in 2020, everything changed out in the open. Anyhow, where should we jump in here, guys? You want to you wanna just do the points, Jason, and read them in? Sure. The myth of Arachne and Minerva represents an underlying archetype of the power dynamic between the elite, the Olympians, and the masses. So I don't know if you agree with me, Wayne, but what I'm starting to notice about the Romanization of all the heroic, it's almost like whatever the time was when the original Greek myths were put forward, there was not this idea of a legal person, a plebe, the betters, these kinds of things. And it almost feels like to me now, and I'm not 100% sure, that what Rome did is latched onto it and refashioned it for its time. Part of that time would be Roman law, where the stuff that we still live with today, the inklings of that was likely introduced. 
it's a stretch, but I'm kind of suspecting that. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you there. I think all the hallmarks of that type of an idea are present with all the Romanized versions of Greek mythology. They've taken this thing and made it their own in a sense. And in so doing, they create this false paradigm, uh, which could relate directly to uh, like the straw man type legal agreement uh, when it, it comes down to terms like that. So I think it does have a direct correlation with the legal ideas and stuff you guys have explored. I think that's uh, part and parcel to where much of it started. That's why all roads lead to Rome. I mean, we we certainly see that. And where are the uh, Roman Senate doors at now? <laughs> Which also relates to things too, doesn't it? Right. So just so everyone knows, the Senate doors from a magical time, supposed ancient Rome, where all the laws and the elites did their business in the Senate, those doors ended up in the Vatican. If I remember, Jason, that was St. John's Basilica where those doors showed up. I think so. So we're going to read in a point here, and here's where we're going to start to outline how you can recognize the relationship to where we are and the encoding of the idea of what Wayne was calling the straw man. In other words, if you're an average man or a woman, you need to accept you're, you're just a person. That's all you are. Look at your driver's license. That's you. That piece of paper you're holding, that's you. And whatever we do to that piece of paper, you are going to answer for this kind of false paradigm, I suspect, is being introduced early on in the very story we're going to cover. There it is, Jason. The masses are symbolically represented by the spider. The elite, or the Olympians, are represented by the symbol of the owl, the superb owl. All right, let's make the crossover for those who have not put it together. Stop what you're doing, write the word Super Bowl, and then simply change the spacing of the word to write superb owl, and you will get what is going on. You will get who and what the owl represents, and you will further comprehend that one of the biggest events in media every year is the Super Bowl or the superb owl. What would you add, Wayne? Oh, I would add that uh, this whole thing uh, with the Romanized version of these Greek myths. Uh, what this has created, like I was alluding to, is this whole straw man idea. Okay, so we, as being the the plebes, so to say, or the underclass of society, we are bound by this straw man identity. Whereas those who are the quote unquote elites of the power structure, the ones represented by the owl, and of course the common man would be represented here by the spider, uh, they are above the law, so to say. They do not depend upon or are not uh, bound to this straw man system. So they could actually operate outside of that. And don't we see that so much in the world today? Uh, these people uh, in positions of power seem to just operate uh, in a sense that we as an average person can't legally operate uh, with regards to this, uh, like things like diplomatic immunity and uh, you know, all the things that they just seemingly get away with all the time. And and this is uh, really uh, borne out well in the arena of politics. When you look at all the all the criminal things and criminal activities going on at the high levels of political society. And yet all of these characters always walk away scot-free, don't they? Uh, that's because they belong to this elitist class of society and they're not bound by these ideas. And I think that's a lot of what... Uh, was really borne out through this process that Rome used uh, to kind of encapsulate these different ideas. And, and I really think there is a crossover point there where uh, they 
brought about this system, this current legal system. I don't know what you want to call it, legal system, law system, whatever it is that designates us as a quote unquote person. And uh, then these elites, upper class people who operate uh, differently than us are not bound by that same system. And that's what I, I think has been developed here with this. And that's one of the things, uh, one of the tools that th- these people have used to control the masses, so to say. I'll, uh, I'll take it a step further. Um, feels to me like what I have said right along that in the old Greek myths, a god is an aspect of nature. It's what it is. Now there's a story that personifies it. And that relates to one level. Like these are all the things that can happen to human beings walking the face of this earth. All these things can happen to you, but you can flip it over and say that God is an aspect of nature. I think I'm starting to suspect that when Rome came in, took all the Greek stuff from whatever time either of those places actually may or may not have been, what they did is they flipped it to, yeah, there are aspects of nature. And these things can be proven true by nature in things like alchemy, but now the gods were the gods, were the Olympians, and you, you are a person. I think there's a relationship there. As we move forward, we can probably demonstrate this a little further, but that's kind of where I'm at right now. And I agree with that because that seems to be exactly what has done. They've taken these ideas of these aspects of nature and personify themselves into people in important positions in the political and social class. And they've designated themselves the elites and uh, have, you know, pretty much uh, identified themselves as the quote unquote Olympians or the gods of this world or of this system to be more accurate. Uh, So that being the case, it's kind of like a, a lesser version of these natural ideas being brought forward. It's it's somewhat of a perversion of some of the alchemical process when it comes down to it. And I think we'll speak on that a little bit more later, but that's exactly what they're trying to do is they're trying to uh, personify these natural aspects into themselves and make themselves out to be the gods of this place and trying to imitate those different natural energies in much the same way to control this artificial system they've created. And I think we're going to see an upgrade to that system coming in the near future, an upgrade from their point of view, not ours. <laughs> so Let's point out how, how did we all live so long and not realize how critically important these old myths are. As an example, the moment COVID came out, I read it, see Ovid, and I was over at Ovid immediately because I was told, obviously, to go see Ovid. I've even written that into the title here, but there's more. Um, if you go back to the older Greek myths, you'll find things like, oh, Apollo's trying to get this nymph and rape her. She doesn't want to be raped, so she turns into a tree. So what I said initially is there's an aspect of nature after an aspect of nature, and this thing, a tree, is created from nature. What's going on here is almost like a bastardization of that idea, because now what's going on is there's this god, S in this case, Athena, which they're calling Minerva because it's over in Roman time. So it's really not Athena per se. This is a Roman tale being told by Romans. So probably we need to say Minerva. Minerva gets mad that a human being got too clever and beat her out and so drives her to suicide. After the death, she has pity and turns her into a spider. Now, I'm not sure about this yet, but I will be looking back at the old original Greeks trying to find that human being becomes a bug. 
that idea. Because if I can't find it, then I will be able to say this does seem to be pretty unique of the Romanized or Ovidic versions of these tales. Right. And that's precisely the thing. I mean, when uh, the Romanized concepts of these come forward and, and Minerva is a Romanization of Athena, see, this thing always seems to happen. Okay. If they're taking the archetype, see, that's the whole point. They've captured, like Ovid in this sense, has captured the archetype of Athena, turned it into, transformed it, transmuted it into Minerva in this story, and uh, put forward the principle here with a certain lesson in mind. Uh, so that's what we're looking at. And it does make allusions. Uh, well, actually, I should say later works, li- later literary works make allusions to this story in, from Ovid. And uh, we'll, we'll connect all the dots here with that later. So before Jason reads us forward, let's just point out, if you go look at the, the narrative for Ovid that we're handed, it's got the same problems as everything. Oh, this dude Ovid did this grand poem and he knew he was going to be commemorated for all time, but things just didn't go the way he wanted them. But here we have Ovid. He was remembered for all time if he was ever a person. What I suspect is these tales are put together in the same way the six o'clock puts our dumbed down narratives together. That's how I accept Ovid, just to put it completely on the record. I know a lot of people have a problem with it. I, I don't care. When I go into these backstories and these histories, I find the same thing constantly. This does not smell right. It does not taste right. It does not sound right. And if I get to that point, sorry, not buying. But anyhow, go ahead, Jason. This symbolism can be tied back to Ovid's retelling of the myth of the story of Arachne and Minerva with connections to other literary works. I'm going to throw this right to you, Wayne. This is the one thing I wanted time and I got tied up with my mother and other things. And I just had zero time to go back and even read Arachne again, which I did not too long ago. What are, do you know the other sources that precede Ovid? That's the thing. I do not. I know there's other Greek sources that talk about different myths relating to Arachne and different myths relating to uh, what they call Athena. But uh, Ovid is the first retelling that I, I see that tells of the story of Arachne and Minerva together. So that's, that's a mea culpa. From me and you and Jason to the audience, that's a mea culpa. This is something we should have known, but I did the same thing. I found it stated that Ovid was the first telling of this version of the Arachne tale. Um, but that's, that's mea culpa on our part. We should know these sources and we'll have to go back and find out. Yeah, that's definitely the thing. I, I should have uh, actually looked back further to see, but uh, I hadn't actually done so. I think the important thing to remember is uh, Ovid is an important playbook for these people in positions of power. So that's why you know it's important that regardless of what the original source of the myth was, we look at Ovid's Romanized version of the myth, because this is by and large, one of the uh, playbooks that they they go from for planning things and such. So that's why it was important uh, whenever you see anything uh, written from Ovid, especially relating to the metamorphosis, uh, it's, it's important to look at that because it's so critical right now in the state that society is in today because we are in a period of metamorphosis. So this is actually one of the major sources that they will uh, leverage to try to get things done that they want in this world. Well, by name, go ahead and see Ovid. And I'm not talking to S-E-E. I'm talking the letter C, Ovid. And it's telling you right there. And by the way, Jason and I were talking yesterday. And so I took apart the word metamorphosis because in my current understanding, the word meta, the idea had always been in common use that it's like man-made or cleverly created. 
So if you know what meta means and look it up, look up the prefix meta, most of them will say a, a creative craftsman like thing, something being created by a craftsman. Well, morph, everyone knows what that is. There's the change. So it's almost like a, a cleverly crafted change is what's in the title of metamorphosis for our time, which is kind of strange because you'll see uh, a butterfly. They'll call that sometimes metamorphosis, but it's really not if you take the word apart, because to me, there's a difference between nature doing the switch and some creative craftsman doing the switch. But anyhow, we're getting a little off track. The story goes as follows. Arachne was a mortal of notable skill in weaving. She grew in fame and wealth because of her skill. This turn of events caused her to become arrogant and prideful. Her artistic ability became so great that she eventually became so hubristic as to challenge the gods to try to outperform her work. So you can already see the levels of meaning on different levels. How you should conduct yourself as just the everyday man or a woman. But again, I will ask, how is it that we overlooked the importance of these tales for so long? After all, the word that we have that defines a spider is derived from this character's name. We have Arachne, the character. We have Arachnid, the spider, the scorpion. As a matter of fact, there's a weird relationship between the crab of the zodiac, if you think about it. A spider has eight legs. A scorpion has 10, and if you want to include the tail, there's 11. That's something to think about. A crab, like a scorpion, has eight legs and then two claws. There's this weird relationship between them, but back to the point, how is it that we can use a language where even in the scientific definition of what it is to be a spider was lifted from this character's name? That should tell everyone the importance. It even affects the way we describe and speak about a thing. Wayne? Absolutely. Uh, that should be a, a telling sign for people. There's something important to pay attention to in, in this whole myth, uh, because much of what we base our quote-unquote science upon today is actually derived from this myth, like uh, the words that, that we use as descriptors for things, because they basically, in the scientific system, the, the nomenclature, they use these Latin names to describe things. And, uh, you know, arachnid, well, this is what we've come to associate with a spider. And that's all because that's where the word comes from. It's from this myth, arachnid, arachne. Uh, so we could see the importance there. And that's the thing. We need to not overlook anymore these ancient myths. There's a lot of important information that can be garnered from this. I mean, even alone, if you just take a look at uh, this last bullet point we just did, one of the important concepts in here is to uh, in how to conduct yourself. Uh, do not become too prideful about things. I mean, if if you're skilled at a certain uh, craft or if you're skilled in a certain thing, don't let it make you become arrogant and you know think that you're better than other people. Uh, because there's you know nature at the end of the day uh, will always even the playing field for everybody at the end of it all, and that's an important uh, message that's kind of encapsulated in this story. If you take nothing else from it, uh, there's always a moral tale involved with a lot of this too. Uh, so, so that's even caught up in here. Not to become too prideful. Uh, and the Bible calls pride a sin. And you can see what the consequence of being prideful is in this story as we get a little further down. Let's point out here, it almost appears that the so-called elite have overlooked the lesson that was taught to Arachne. 
What Arachne did, if I want to change the language so we can think about it, is a woman who had real skill weaving said, not even nature can make something better than me. And then nature said, sorry, Charlie, I'm nature. I made you. You exist in me. Everything I do goes on and on and on without a battery. I will never die. You can never do a thing better than nature. Now come up to our time where all this technology, all this weather modification, all this stuff is almost verbatim the lesson that was taught to Arachne. Yeah, you guys are clever. Yeah, you can craft some stuff. But at the end of the day, you're not better than the gods or, to rephrase it, better than nature. I would just point out. Right. A, uh, a creation can never be greater than its creator. There I, I accept that to be a truth. And, and that's where we're at. I mean, this, this is exactly the story that's encapsulated in this myth. And uh, look at where we are today, as you have pointed out. It's the same kind of thing. A lot of these people in positions of power seem to think they could build it better. They can build a better world than the creator did. See, and that's, that's where, like you said, these, this elite class, this quote-unquote elite class, has not learned from this lesson. But uh, there's a distinction there that needs to be made. They don't see themselves the same as the rest of us. They find themselves, they, they think themselves to be superior to us. Because you see, we're the spider class, they're the owl class. And that's where the distinction lies. See, they're the Olympians. They think that they are just far and away superior, almost a separate species from the rest of us. Not earthbound. And exactly. a lot of these tales, like the owl is not earthbound. So you, there's a lot of the flying or above on Olympus, not earthbound is often the key indicator. Right. And I think we'll touch on that a little bit more later in some of the points made here. The silence of the gods on this matter only fed her arrogance more. Until, one day, Minerva, in disguise as an old woman, showed up to warn Arachne against her attitude toward the gods in this matter. When Arachne answered her with a further challenge to the gods, Minerva revealed her true identity and accepted her challenge right then and there. In some ways, this is where I'm starting to suspect that the Romanized versions of these tales are being repurposed to a new end, which is actual physical control in this world of one class over another or one group over another. I'm not 100% sure about this yet because like everyone else, I have to go back and start getting at the root of the unabridged real Greek tales. But think about the way this was described. It's very similar to how the Greek tales are told. But at the end of the day, the outcome, I think, is very different. Yeah, I mean, there's subtle nuances there in the way that Ovid wrote this. Uh, that kind of uh, connect the dots with that type of an idea. Uh, so that being the case, it has been, to some sense, repurposed in this way. Uh, they've taken some of these older tales and uh, repurposed them to kind of uh, point out this story and and weave this story together, so to say, in order for uh, you know the distinction to be made that there's a class differential in our society. And a lot of this could be tied directly back to Rome because you did, you had the plebes and you had the upper class. And, and a lot of this, I'm sure it goes back to earlier points in history as well, but there, there's always been this type of a, a division strategy to create like the, the upper class and the lower class. And many of these societies and ancient cultures, they didn't really like the idea of a middle class that much. Uh, and that kind of tr- carries forward to today. So that's exactly what's been trying to be uh, accomplished here is they just want a two-class system because that's much easier to control 
than a multi-tiered class of systems. Uh, so when you look at a different hierarchical organization like that, if you have just an upper class that rules over a lower class, well, that's much simpler to manage, isn't it? And I think that's one of the things that they always try to uh, leverage into existence throughout all of our different uh, societies and stuff like that is this two-tier system rather than a multi-tier system. And, and much of the Western world has adopted what's called the middle class. And that's largely trying to be done away with in this past year and a half now with everything going on. You know, you could also look at what I said earlier as Arachne does create something better than the gods, better than nature, but then pays a price for it. Um, I'm still getting stuck on Minerva. You know, I always wonder, Jason and I were talking about this. Why do they have to make Athena Minerva? Why can't Athena just be Athena? And we see it, you know, what's a good example of this? Apollo and Artemis. Well, in the Roman, it pretty much becomes Apollo and Diana. Well, why did they need to change that? What's the point of changing that? There's absolutely a reason for these things. But as Jason gets in here, you're about to see that Minerva gets on Arachne's last nerve and drives her to the brink. Minerva set about to weave her cloth first and produced a tapestry of great beauty representing the splendor of the gods and their majesty. Now would be the point where we have to check that attachment and get the specifics. Yeah, we are going to include a link to myfolklore.blogspot.com and there will be a much more in-depth version because when you start to get in it, 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 first of all, it's calling her Pallas Athena. They're not calling her Minerva and that all has meaning. Look up Pallas if you want to know. And where is this happening? On the Hill of Mars. That has meaning. I mean, every little bit that's added into the originals is referencing something of import. And that's where it gets tough for us to cover it. But we will have the link, hopefully in the top comment, myself or Rose will get it put in. Is there anything you want to add about the supposed goddess Minerva weaving her gorgeous cloth? And and in the tale, a lot of what's important about the cloth is the imagery that's woven into it, by the way. Right. And that's that's kind of what we're going to cover here with this whole link is the detail that's uh, woven into it. But as far as the uh, I just wanted to comment on what you had said about uh, why did they change this from Athena to Minerva? Uh, I think a lot of this has to do with they're introducing an artificial idea into this tale, which originally encapsulated some portion of the natural world. So if they're introducing this artificial concept or idea into the works, they change up the name because we all know names have meaning and words have meaning. So I would suspect that uh, it's one of those clever ways to uh, leverage twilight language to encapsulate the artificial idea and tie it together with the original natural idea, in a sense. I agree. And we can see these supposed elites in the representational face that we see called NASA. Now, here's case in point. You can even look up on Wicca Never Tells the Truthpedia and find out immediately that they are lying. They open by telling you we're lying about the gender of the sun and the moon. We're going to tell you it's this way, but in the first line, we're going to tell you almost always it's the other way historically. So here's the idea of Apollo and NASA's use. Apollo is not the sun god. As far as I can tell, that was changed over time in the same way Athena became Minerva. Helios is the sun god. So now we have this god that's not really the sun god standing in as the sun god, and he has a twin sister who should be one name, Artemis from the original Greek, but is suddenly Diana. 
And that was put to such great use in the death of, wait for it, Princess Di. So I'm with Wayne all day long. These changes had a reason, had a purpose. I, I can't wait to get all the college professors emails telling me I don't know what I'm talking about here, Wayne. <laughs> hey, man, that's all good. Let, the, let them disagree. I mean, uh, they're taught their literary studies or whatever and different meanings and interpretations of this, that, or the other thing. But I'm here to tell you there's a level of meaning encoded within the surface reading that most people don't pick up upon because this is the concept of what could be called twilight language or the green language or the language of the birds, all these different ideas, what I would call phonetic Kabbalah uh, in, in some sense too. Uh, all of these things are you know, incorporated into these tales. And a lot of it has to do with the symbolism in there and not necessarily what the surface read is. Well, I'll just point out before I get any nasty grams, if you were not aware before hearing this, that the Super Bowl is encoding the idea of the superb owl. And if you have no clue about what the straw man identity is, well, there's my, my reason. If you don't know about these things, you couldn't possibly put it together. So let's keep going, Jason. Arachne took her turn next and wove together a stunning tapestry of the crimes of the gods and the evils they represented in such vivid detail as to win the contest with Minerva. Okay, there's another reference to see attachment two within the link we'll put here, but this is an interesting turn too, because what Arachne weaves in is basically all the things of the aspects of nature she doesn't like. And nature is neither good nor evil. But if we flip the gods over to the elite, you see what I'm saying here, Wayne? It's almost like, I, I don't know, it, it's, it's a strange juxtaposition. It is. And basically, uh, to give the short version of what exactly Arachne did here, she basically represented all the crimes of the quote unquote gods against humanity in her tapestry that she made. Uh, so this really... Uh, <laughs> embarrassed and belittled Minerva in a sense. So that's the thing. When you're looking at this, the idea that uh, they've ported over these natural ideas and personified them in the elite class of the day, and uh, Minerva represented this class, the Olympians, the gods, so to say, they've taken this and they've taken hold of power and set, created these two separate classes of people, okay? The Olympian class and the underclass, which uh, Arachne represented the underclass and Minerva the upper class. So although Minerva made her tapestry, she portrayed all of the wonderful, luxurious things that the gods of that time, the elite class, represented. And she put that in her tapestry. Well, Arachne did the opposite and showed all the criminal activity and all the bad things that this ruling class had done uh, to the underclass in hers. And uh, her her work, of course, was superior craftsmanship wise to Minerva's. So uh, she had won the contest in in that sense, but uh, embarrassed the upper class in so doing. And this is where it creates a little bit of contention. And this is where one of the valuable lessons comes into play here in the story, because see of her her haughty spirit against this upper class called attention to herself, okay? So she was very hubristic towards the quote-unquote gods, the Olympians of that time, and she brought this attention on herself. So so much so that Minerva actually came down in disguise, not being forthright or genuine with her from the start, and uh, called her out on it. And 
but lo and behold, Minerva lost the contest. So she was humbled in this regard. But uh, she also, as we'll see as we get a little further into the story, wanted to make a point to Arachne about this, about her her behavior towards these uh, gods, so to say, and wanted to make her an example for others who might use their talents to subvert the upper class. And that's that's kind of one interpretation of this that we could make. But uh, you see my point, I think, with the whole thing. As Jason gets in here, I'll refresh everyone's memory back to what was it, a butter commercial or something in the 70s? It's not nice to fool Mother Nature, and that will cue up this point well. Arachne exposed the crimes of the gods, or the Olympians, through her tool, the weaving shuttle, and spun a web detailing facts that the gods did not necessarily like the mortals or the public to see. This is pretty telling on the face of it. Let's keep burning through. Let's get to the next point, Jason, before we break to speak. Having lost the contest to Arachne, Minerva became upset and sought to teach Arachne a lesson about disrespecting the gods. So she smote Arachne three times with her weaving shuttle, the same tool used by Arachne to humiliate Minerva. Arachne immediately felt sorrowful for her actions and set out to hang herself. She committed suicide. So here's an interesting juxtaposition, um, and I will have to go back to old Greek tales. To me, it feels like we're, we're veering off a little bit here. So what's happening is the god was humiliated from someone's skill with a tool. The tool was then used to beat the person or the, the woman nearly senseless to the point where she's going to hang herself. And by the way, this all has to do with threads and ropes and, you know, it's all in that same vein and she kills herself. What's interesting is in so many of the old Greek tales where a transformation is going to happen, it just happens on the fly. This person's running and suddenly there's something else and now they're safe from the, the thing they were running from. In this case, nature forces a suicide or pushes to a suicide to get the then metamorphosis. In other words, the metamorphosis had to be implemented in such a way to have happened. Did I say that right way? And I feel like I didn't say that right. It seems like in order for the metamorphosis to occur, it had to sort of be forced. Uh, So in order to get this whole idea going, I mean, this is encapsulating the whole archetype of the Phoenix idea. Once again, Uh, it would represent a rebirth of sorts, but I, I think it's, it's kind of a convoluted version of this same concept. What's been done here because, uh, We'll see when we get to the next point. Arachne, okay, she she hung herself and committed suicide. All right. Uh, and she was driven to do this by the, uh, I guess you would say, uh, the actions of Minerva. This this constant, this the ridicule and the attacks of Minerva, the continuing attacks from Minerva on her drove her to this point where she saw oh, no way out other than suicide. And uh, that's an idea. It's an archetypal type idea that goes back quite far, this whole idea. Um, And we could see how it reflects in different things in future literature from Ovid and in uh, just future iterations of uh, what we would call psychiatry and these type of things. You you could see how somebody, she was driven over the edge, so to say. This was finally, this was the last straw, the straw that broke the camel's back for her. She couldn't take the attacks, the constant ridicule and attacks anymore. So she decided to try to end it all. And uh, that may not have been 
what Minerva had intended for her to do, but she was going to make good on this in some way, shape, or form in some sense, or try to, uh, how should we say, not let the crisis go to waste, so to say, to try to bring it to the modern day, so to say, for people. Well, there's one more thing that we should point out here. Uh, This whole tale is underscoring a unique aspect of what it means to be a living man or a living woman. We make and use tools. Arachne had this tool called a weaving shuttle and did this incredible work. Um, And so the idea that a tool can be used to go too far in the face of nature is also kind of built in this. But to catch up, a woman who could weave like nobody's business, got really prideful and puffed up and said, I'm better than everything, including the natural world or the gods. Gods got pissed off. They had a contest. The woman showed that she could weave better than anybody. God gets mad, beats her almost to death with a shuttle, hits her three times with the very tool she used to do it. And then the humiliation drives her to kill herself. And this is a unique tale because of this part. So what happens next, Jason? after uh, Minerva drives Arachne to commit suicide. Minerva took pity on Arachne, so she transformed her into a spider, so she could still serve as an example of what happens when you disrespect the gods, but in so doing, spared Arachne's life. So the spider becomes the symbol for the mortals and their ambitions. So this is a weird turnabout, because... In the versions I read, it does say suicide, and that implies that she killed herself. But in this following idea that's in the myth, she she was about to die, but we just turned her into a spider so she could keep her life. But doesn't that stick out to you, Wayne, the idea that they introduce an actual suicide? It does, because uh, in in my view, this would represent uh, the symbolic separation of what we would call the natural man from uh, the straw man, in a sense. So in order to spare Arachne, in a sense of uh, this recompense, Minerva created this separate artificial entity of sorts in making her into a spider. So she created this kind of straw man idea. So you could see, I don't know if I'm I'm really capturing the, the idea well enough for people to really understand what I'm saying here, but she transformed what would be considered the natural man into this artificial thing, this instrument of commerce, so to say, in a sense. So we could see these legal ideas and stuff are all caught up in this as well. And I think that's what the intention is because uh, it was a transformation of of sorts. So she transformed this uh, living woman into something completely different. Less, something less. less. Precisely. So that's the thing, something that would be viewed as, uh, say, and we'll get to this later, uh, as an energy source for the uh, for the gods, so to say, uh, because you see the gods, they, they are represented in this case by the owl archetype. And now she's transformed Arachne into this spider archetype. And a chief food source for owls is indeed the spider. So it's it's once again, it's another one of those she kind of knocked Arachne down the food chain a little more, so to say. Uh, <laughs> more than a little. <laughs> from from living woman to Arachnid. <laughs> right. So now you're going to be, your, your labor belongs to the upper class. See, that's kind of the idea here. Mm. And that's that's kind of what's, I think, captured in the imagery of this. It's, it's so to say she made it so that 
her labor now, Arachne's labor, now belongs to the upper class. And they, they've done so through this straw man type system. Part of nature too, Wayne. I like the idea that you're laying down because when Arachne was a woman, she was doing what she did for the benefit of other women and men. When she got knocked down, all the weaving she did was part of nature then. So the labor was in fact part of the natural world. Right. So it's kind of... Uh... She, she got knocked down a few pegs, let's put it that way. So uh, with her skill, okay, she got so good at this skill that she thought she was better able to do better than nature. Well, now she's back into the natural realm again, isn't she, with her skill? Uh, I see where you're going with that as well. It's kind of a lesson to be learned here through it. And there, there's just so many levels of meaning that we could get out of this whole story. And that's, that's just one of the many uh, lessons and levels we could see here in this story. Uh, so, you know, there, there's a lot to be garnered from these old myths, as we just keep saying over and over. And I'm sure there's stuff that I missed in putting the notes together. And that that's the thing. That's why it's important that, uh, you know, there's a few of us that take a look at these things and try to, uh, uh, you know, pull out any meanings and hidden entendres and stuff in there that we didn't catch the first time. And, and that's the thing. I did a uh, an overview of the story here and put together some notes of things that I spotted right out of the gate with it. But there's always, always more buried underneath the surface. If you go back to the original, it's a poem. And uh, even the webpage that we're going to put a link to, you're going to see all these words like Athena Palace. P-A-L-L-A-S is a good example. Do you know what that means? Well, if you want to know what that means, you got to try to look it up. But does it imply things? And that's where the classically trained... Um, Folks in our world that were classically trained with the Greek are going to have a, an idea of why the Hill of Mars and all these other things. And this is what's difficult to go back on, because if you want the full tale, you got to go back to the original poem that's been translated, by the way, and then you got to be able to put it together. There are very few words that are not conveying meaning, I would add. Minerva, representing the gods or the Olympians, solidified the legitimacy of the power and providence of this group of elites over the masses, the mortals. What do we know about Minerva and the symbols that represent her, and by proxy, the gods of whom she represented in the contest with Arachne? You know, Wayne, I guess when I look at the oldest Greek stuff, I always imagine in my mind, Zeus, he's an aspect of nature, one of the most powerful influences of nature. He's personified to help tell the, the tale and to also imply these are things that can truly happen to all of us in the course of a lifetime. But in this, it's feeling like, yeah, she's an aspect of nature, but it, there's something else, right? She's being related to an actual power structure. At least it feels that way. Right. And that's why I would say that uh, this, this Romanized tale put forth by Ovid and we were we were critically warned last year, or two years ago now almost, uh, that we should take a look at Ovid more carefully to see Ovid. Uh, so that being the case, we could kind of see what it is that's going on today. This is the same type of thing happening, a metamorphosis of sorts. So metamorphosis, this is another thing here. Ovid took these older tales and turned them into something else and, and introduced different artificial ideas into the stories of, you know, these different gods, which represented aspects of nature and transformed it in a sense into an earthly power structure here. Romanized it maybe would be the word. Yeah. And Romanized it. 
And here's another thing that, that kind of alchemically ties this idea together. At one point, um, when we go through the notes, if anybody looks at those uh, those attachments, that'll be uh, in the links below the episode image here. You'll be able to go back and read through here. Uh, one of the things depicted on one of the tapestries is, uh, I think it was, uh, I don't remember which god it attributed it to, uh, the one with the trident. Was it Neptune, maybe? That was represented. Yeah, it was represented. Yes, represented on Minerva's tapestry. I don't know if they use the name Neptune. It's the same archetype, though. That's the important thing. All right, they may they may have referred to it as Jupiter, uh, if I if I remember right. But it's it's the archetype of the one with the trident. Well, in her depiction on her tapestry, she made it's a picture of this god driving his trident into the rocks or the earth and water pouring forth. So we have the idea, uh, when you look back at the classical philosophical elements of earth and water, this always represents the physical world in a lot of these different ideas. So this is showing that they took their position as rulers of this physical realm here, so to say. Uh, That's one of the depictions made on the tapestry. So that kind of an idea backs up this idea that they took these natural concepts or these natural energy ideas and utilized them to personify those things in themselves to create this artificial system and try to control this artificial system of their creation, of their own creation, in the ways that the natural energies would allow, in a sense. So that, that's kind of what's been done. I looked. It's Neptune. It is Neptune, Wayne. It is Neptune. Okay, I was correct the first time. I couldn't quite remember. I read so many things in a day. <laughs> it's hard to keep it all straight at times. No, it's a key point. These are archetypal, you know, earth, air, fire, water. These are the old school table of elements, so to speak. It's not a physical thing in the world, but it is. It's a philosophical principle about a thing we call water or a thing we call air. And that's as far as it goes. But the idea there is that these four things make everything happen here. There's no tank of gas to add. There's no battery to change out. This is so ingenious. It'll go on ad infinitum as long as it goes on. But to catch everyone up, this is where I've come when I first began to realize that CNN used the Greek myth of truth down the well to launch their lies and announce at the same time that they were now going to make a living on lies and that it was going to come 24-7. At that point, everything changed. And I went back and I started reading. So here's what it appears. I'm going to put it in a nutshell. There was this old heroic time nobody knows anything about. We call them Greeks, even though the Greeks have only been around since the 1800s. Probably a better way to call them would be Hellenistic or something like that. Who knows? Argyles, Argyle, you know, who knows? But you know what I'm getting at? That old Greek myth is what we call it now. They were heroes. They were so much mightier than the average man or woman today that they were almost like superheroes. And then there were gods in those tales. It all comes to a head in Troy. In Troy, the place gets thrown down to the ground, beat out. The tales, the sneakiness, all of it is told in the Odyssey and the Iliad. And those people that escape from Troy are told by the gods, you got to stay alive and make it to Rome and found this next greatest thing that's going to own and operate the world to the end of time. So what happens is Rome then turns around later and has its Ovid to tie its genesis back to the heroic times. Claim it's like the Vatican. They've got to claim authority somewhere, right? So they go back to a supposed apostle or whatever you want to call Peter, and they try to claim their authority that way. This is no different. 
Rome is claiming its authority back to the heroic times. And things get morphed and sullied along the way, if you notice what we're trying to point out here. Anyhow, Jason. As we progress further into this study, the importance of symbology will become more apparent. Arachne, who represents the common man or the public, is represented by the symbol of the spider. Minerva, who represents the Olympians or the elite, is represented by the symbol of the owl, the superb owl. That superb owl, you know, what is it? Weaving spiders come not here. Do you need any more justification to show what the symbol, and it's not just any owl. Let's point it out, Wayne. What owl are we talking about? We're talking about the great horned owl in the modern era. And who is that? It's Bubo Virginianus. Does everyone remember that Athena and, Athena and Minerva are virgin? Well, even in her little familiar or whatever you would call the owl in the modern representation, like Clash of the Titans, that owl is named Bubo. Now you know why. Because if you look up the Latin descriptive term put on the great horned owl, it will be Bubo Virginianus. And that's probably grabbing from pretty sure Virginia, the state. But when you know that, how can you ever see the name of the state of Virginia used and not realize that this is talking about the Virgin? What's next to it? Mary land is next to it. You see where we're laying down here. What would you add, Wayne? Uh, I would add also in between Maryland and Virginia, we have the uh, District of Columbia, uh, Washington, D.C. And uh, if you look at the aerial layout of portions of Washington, D.C., uh, well, lo and behold, it looks like an owl from the air, doesn't it? The imagery is all there yep. uh, for certain. And we could see these very things even encoded on our money. If you go to the back of a $1 bill and look up in the other upper right corner, you'll see a little tiny owl up there in print on the back of the dollar bill. These things aren't by accident, folks. Uh, let's put it that way. They they leverage these symbols for different reasons. And uh, you could even trace this, this archetype back further. This goes back to Isis in the Egyptian mythos as well. It's the same thing. The owl represents the magician, represents Isis, represents Athena, represents Minerva, forward and on and on we go. So it's it's one of those things where this has been leveraged to create this separate class of people that see themselves as being better than the average person. So uh, you could see the ways that this uh, idea has been, this archetype, I should say, has been abused by those who would try to position themselves in an advantageous way against others. Uh, so this thing has been ongoing from time immemorial. And, you know, that being the case, um, we could see how many of these ideas and concepts that weren't necessarily bad to begin with, because these things originally began as uh, descriptions of the aspects of nature, but uh, they've been perverted and twisted to be used against mankind as a weapon, uh, as secrecy, as secret knowledge, so to say, from a, a particular power base to the, the common folks. Uh, so that being the case, it, this is a type of uh, perversion of an alchemical process of sorts, and we see that that's exactly what happened when the Romanized version of things happened. They took these ideas from the fall of Troy, like Crow pointed out there, and they brought them forward into something new. This was a metamorphosis, a transformation, an alchemical wedding of sorts. They took the older ideas and transmuted them into something different than what was originally intended uh, through the Romanizing of these things. And that's why 
uh, authors like Ovid are so important to to read with this and to try to you know see these different aspects of how the mythologies have changed over time from the Greek version to the Roman version. And even just the, the very simple uh, difference of, of changing the names of these gods or aspects of nature into something different than what it originally was in the original Greek myth. Uh, so that's my view of why a lot of this was done. It was a transformation, a societal transformation, a great reset of sorts, wasn't it? Well, one of the hermetic principles is gender. Look what's going on here. When you see that owl built into the streets of DC, you have to think of Athena or Minerva. That's the creative feminine force. Everything about our world to all us who have been so easily fooled is masculine. Our religion is masculine. Unless you're Catholic, then there is a feminine edge. But who runs this place? It's a man's world. All this gender shuffling where it's pretty clear that they're all about the, fe the female creative force, right? There's Isis, there's Athena. All these ancient archetypes are the creative force only found in the female gender. Now come up to what the news is doing and the modern ideas that are trying to shuffle your brain so that you can't remember what it is, those hermetic principles, the laws of nature put forth. They're going to tell you that, oh, you were assigned a gender at birth. No, you weren't. No, you were not. You got what you got, and it's demonstrable what you got. And this idea that somehow it's fluid is an attempt to shuffle. And while we know certainly that nature will do every possibility, so you can't say they're totally lying because nature will show you that possibility. Almost anything can happen. But when you try to blow it out, that 90 or 100% of society should be affected in a way that maybe one-tenth of 1% nature generally rolls out, then you can see it's no different than saying, well, 90% of the time in this part of the world, it's going to be cold. We're going to change that. Now it's going to be hot 90% of the time. And in doing so, you have truly changed something. And I would point out in the creative force, when you're messing with it in this way, what you're changing is how many people will be born into this world if you logically run it out. All right. I would urge everyone to go back and get Ovid. See Ovid. How could you not? And when you do see Ovid, if you're willing to put a little work in it, get the original poetry version, but you will work for every other dang word because you will be looking it up and cross-referencing it, trying to figure out what was being said. Now, you can get the children's version, which is kind of what I referenced in Bullfinch, where it's all been kind of smoothed off the edges, all this extra information thrown out just to give you some of the meat and potatoes. You can do that too. But in doing so, you've got to realize that these are the playbooks. And why do the playbooks work? Well, for one thing, they're hearkening back to this heroic time that nobody knows anything about in the, in the modern era. The other thing is it's because the laws of nature prove that these things are true. The hermetic principles work. They're verifiable. And so when you apply them to either bad things or good things, you're starting on a solid foundation. But that brings the first hour of episode 378 to a close with Jason Lindgren and Wayne McCroy talking about the old myth of Arachne, the weaver, retold or maybe told for the first time. We'll have to go check in the Roman times in the book, Ovid's Metamorphosis. There it is. Hope you'll join us on the other side at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers. 
belief is the enemy of knowing.